Welcome to the Communications and Sharing Knowledge series of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Brave Spaces podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, we're going to do an introduction now to a new podcast series. It's going to be hosted by Professor Robert Leckie, who is the Dean of the McGill University Faculty of Law, where he teaches constitutional law and family law. Uh, Robert served as a law clerk for Justice Michelle Basterash of the Supreme Court of Canada. He chaired the McGill Equity Subcommittee on Queer People, was president of EGAL Canada, chairing its Legal Issues Committee. Prior to his appointment as dean, he was director of the Paul-André Crepeau Center for Private and Comparative Law. He's won many awards for his wonderful teaching, therefore communication skills. We're very proud that he is a 2003 Pierre Elliott Trudeau Scholar, a great success. Robert, as I mentioned, will be hosting the podcast series uh, we're about to start, which is why we're speaking to him now to get his thoughts on communication and information sharing. Hello, Robert. Hi, Valerie. Can you start off maybe just so people have some kind of orientation as they listen to you going forward, telling us a little bit about your work and particularly, you know, this communication and knowledge sharing piece, how that's been central to your work? I have a very clear memory. When I was a graduate student at the University of Toronto, there was a bulletin board in the hallway, and this is how old I am. When professors there had an op-ed in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star, it would be clipped out. Literally, the newsprint would be kind of clipped and pinned to this board. And I would walk by it and I would see them and I would see these people are contributing to public education and public debate. And I would say, I want to, you know, I want to be one of the scholars who does that one day. So I've had from the very beginning the idea that you don't just publish things in books and scholarly journals. You also try to talk to people. You know, my aunt who reads the Global Mail at breakfast or my parents, their neighbors, that you, you try to reach out to other people. And so I've been trying to do that from the very beginning of my career. And the, the Trudeau Foundation had a piece in that because when I was a scholar, my mentor was Jeffrey Simpson, who had been at the Globe and Mail for donkey's years. And Jeffrey cast his eye very kindly over the first op-ed I pitched to the Globe and such a painful process learning to speak simply. You spend all these years learning expertise and then you got to learn to dumb it down or that sounds negative. You got to learn to make it simple <laughs> and clear. But that's a kind of journey throughout my time as a law prof. How do you speak to the public as well as to students? Now as a dean, you got to speak to alumni, you got to speak to other outside stakeholders. So the communication kind of runs through the whole, the whole career really I've had to date. And the impetus for that was the sharing of the ideas, the the selling of concepts, or uh, you know, a profile, a presence. You know, what's the goal? There's different ways of coming at it. I mean, part of it in this Canadian context, where the institutions we work in are publicly funded, it does seem to me that there's a kind of responsibility. So I, I actually I don't spend my days negatively judging the colleagues who don't do it, but I, for myself, think of it as a kind of duty that I have the, the great privilege of having working conditions that do allow me to take an hour now and then to try to dash off something or talk to a few journalists. I, so I think we're a public resource. I think the ideas I work on, particularly the ways in which families aren't always recognized by law or aren't recognized well by law, 
that stuff matters to people and I want to talk to them about it. And I want to sometimes try to move things forward. So it's a sense that the ideas matter, a sense that there's a duty. Sure. I mean, it's also kind of fun when you put something out there and you hear reactions from people, it is gratifying and, and unquestionably there's immediate reaction to an op-ed or a, a TV spot that having something published in a journal has no equivalent. I mean, you, you put something out there, it could be months or years before people tell you they saw your, your journal article. So it, it, it's all those things, I think. I, you know, it's interesting to view it as a duty because, and I, you know, I think obviously this is one of the things that the Trudeau Foundation talks about to scholars, you know, to be a public intellectual and to be a leader, an intellectual leader. How do you feel you have impact or how can you tell you have impact from putting your ideas out there? Again, I'm so old that I used to get feedback in different forms. So there would be at times in the past, if I did a radio interview, there might be a voice message left on my office phone that I'd see the next day. Now, the social media makes it much more immediate, right? So you see stuff on Twitter, a little bit less on Facebook. You have a sense that people are engaging. So that's always interesting. And my spouse at times asks if it's just a sort of ego stroke of having people react. And there is clearly something there. But you also have a sense people are reading and thinking and seeing the way they answer or comment, or we're seeing if people are going to quote and retweet and pull out a sentence. It's always interesting to see what they pull. And if they pull a sentence, I think is really important. I think, okay, I've, I've really managed to communicate on that one. Well, you know, you've touched on, on the evolution and change, obviously, we've seen in, in ways that we communicate, uh, which have impacted the way you do your work and, and get your messages out. What do you think are the impacts of all the evolution and change, you know, with social media essentially dominating? Some, some's quite positive. So I think having done a fair amount of media myself, I try to write as a scholar more simply. So I, I think my own, even the stuff I send to the scholarly journals might be a little more accessible as a result of those years of trying to polish or simplify the op-ed or find a way to speak to the, the journalist. So some of that's positive. Then there's the question of whether the sort of constraints of simplification are extreme. Like, is, is it impossible to have nuances in the media, in social media? And I know there's, there are some pressures there, and it's hard to, to really deliver complicated ideas or to have the, the necessary caveats so you get kind of quoted out of context. But there is some risk of that kind. I kind of acknowledge this is where we're going. So I've, I've had exercises the last couple of years now when I'm teaching where the students had to tweet at least once in the semester, like just informally in the class website, but they had to make a critical comment about one day's readings and they had to, to tweet it. And that's because I know a lot of our people are going to go out into contexts where they will be the spokespeople for organizations or they will be trying to communicate in this new format. So finding a way to do it, like I, I think that's got to be as much of our work as teaching, you know, how to write legal memos and so on. Yeah, what what an exercise too, because you know, as you say, where's the nuance? Where's the complexity in a few words and a, a few letters? I had a media training session when I was a fairly junior prof, and it was helpful because a couple of colleagues were there, and a couple of them were people who'd had bad experiences with the media, such that they would like hesitate to talk to journalists again. They felt they'd been quoted out of context and so on. And the media relations person coaching us said, like, one way to do it is you say, like, you know, you can say in very few words, it's not black and white, or you can say, this is a complex area, or we're waiting to know for sure. Like, there actually are ways you can try to do it. And it's very hard to 
for journalists to sort of cut and fragment the quote when you say it's not black and white. Huh? Like there are some strategies better than others of trying to, to deal with that. What you're also, I guess, facing all the time, especially in, you know, with instant feedback over Twitter and response and people retweeting and stuff is the ugliness that often people get into when people disagree mm-hmm. and have a difference of opinion. Yeah. And you got to decide how much are you deterred by the idea of how people might react? So if you can already anticipate when you say something that you believe in, what the negative reaction will be, does that stop you saying it? Or do you say, look, I, I got to put out the message I want to put out, even if I can anticipate how some people are going to react. And uh, I, mean, I guess you got to decide how thick your skin is and how much you care about what it is you want to put out there. But the possibility, if you're even like a sort of quasi known figure with a few followers, that the possibility that there will be that kind of backlash or or critique is is kind of always present. Well, and this speaks to the importance of being able to foster and participate, navigate conversations between different communities, you know, differences of opinion. Also, you know, academic versus non-academic. Oh, it's really tricky, right? Reaching across and even finding the words that work. So uh, in, in some of the LGBTQ activism, what are the words that you can use to communicate a radical idea to a 65-year-old judge, for example. And I remember discussions like, would they know what queer means? How do you stay true to principles while trying to translate your ideas for others? There can be communication gaps across generations, communication gaps across different social groups. It's a lot to arbitrate and you got to try to keep listening and try to keep talking to people and trying, I guess, in, in certain contexts, explaining that no stakeholder group is going to have everything they want can we be working together somehow? Well, you know, it is fraught at times, you know, because it, it seems sometimes people are being told, you can't say that. You can't even express those ideas. They're so not acceptable now or not politically correct or whatever that, you know, conversation is just shut down. Yeah, there's, there's a sense that some things can't be spoken, although I, I, I think it's exaggerated often. And I think some of the people complaining that, that they're being canceled and have no way to speak seem to have a lot of megaphones in front of them. So I'm, I'm, I'm less worried than some that, that the cancel culture is out of control. But there are differences around the words that are used. There are also differences around how quickly things are going to change. And so one senses, at least in the university context, there are groups who, you know, maybe for two centuries have been shut out. And as things start to move, they don't just want it to change tomorrow, they want it to change yesterday. And so when you sort of say to them, oh, like, you know, changing these things will take a little time. Sometimes they listen and they feel you're basically stonewalling, saying, like, we're refusing to change. But honestly, some things in an institutional setting do take time to change. And you got to be working with a lot of people. So there can be a lot of challenges in these discussions. Well, I guess, I mean, you saw that a lot probably with your work with EGAL and the subcommittee on queer people and stuff. And again, it's just some of its language, some of its ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they go together. But the idea, I mean, if you can really accept that, you know, people you respect and can learn from have different views than you do and will use different words. And then you say, what can I, how can I learn from that? It, it can help instead of just kind of jumping to judgment. So, you know, this podcast, these, this podcast series is about brave spaces, which is a, you know, a concept that uh, the Trudeau scholars are, are working on 
and, and themselves. What does the notion of a, of a brave space mean to you? I mean, the brave space to me evokes a conversation, a forum, a setting where I have to be open to being surprised by what I hear, being uncomfortable hearing some things, uh, you know, well outside the comfort zone. The idea being that being exposed to new ideas is, is important, but not easy. And so clearly the brave space is contrasting with the idea of the safe space, but it, it, it's important. I mean, the, I guess the balance is keeping in mind that in, in ways some people don't recognize the conversations we come to, we don't all enter on equal footing. So there are people who will come in having a sense of being deeply marginalized. And so it may be easy for the people who feel at home in the space to say, let's make it a brave space. But nonetheless, on, on the whole, if you think of how, you know, how traditionally rules that silence people, how they play out for say vulnerable minorities, like we, we tend to come on the downside of those things. So personally, I tend to be, you know, in favor of, 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 of less regulation of speech rather than more thinking. And from my own personal perspective, you know, if you, if you start to have some rules around censorship, it's going to be the shipment to the gay bookstore that's going to be stopped at the border first. And so the awareness that, that that's how police power and how censorship tends to work, it tends to shut the people who are already already vulnerable. That leads me certainly to favor less regulation, more openness to a whole lot of people saying a whole lot of things, but it may not be very comfortable for some of the people in those conversations. You know, when people talk about communications, they think, you know, writing or talking, mm -hmm. not listening. You know, when you think of communications, are you thinking communicating your ideas, your point of view with a point of winning people over? But even to, even trying to win people over, you got to be listening to them to know where they're coming from, how they're coming at that. I work in a faculty where there's always a couple of legal traditions in play. And if you're trying to explain an area of law to someone, it's helpful to know what they know already. So what are they sort of expecting to hear? How is what you're sharing today different from what they know already? Like that seems to me already, even trying to persuade people, you got to be thinking about them and listening to them. I may also be influenced. I, I taped a podcast with Beverly McLaughlin, the former Chief Justice of Canada, and she was certainly talking about the importance of listening. And it, and it made me think as well. But whether it's teaching, whether it's leading, whether it's, you know, all, all these things, you certainly got to be doing a lot of listening as well. So it, yeah, that is communication. And, and, you know, even if you're writing, sharing the draft to people and listening to them, what did they see in it? How did it communicate to them? I don't think you can just do it alone in your office. So what are you hoping will be the takeaway from this podcast for the people who are listening? You know, do you, do you sort of have a vision for these conversations, what you want people to learn, what you want to learn? I mean, already I anticipate certain things are going to be common. Like you ask, how has communication changed in the past couple of decades? Nobody's going to ignore social media, right? But I, I, I do hope that hearing how a range of people who have been actively engaged in communication, how they think about it and speak about it, maybe it'll help the listeners to be a little more self-conscious and intentional about the choices they make and the way they communicate and the choices they make about what they, what they read, what they listen to, what they do with it. So I, I hope that we'll have a sort of, a short series of vignettes that help people clarify how, how they're doing their own communications in their lives. But without it, you're really lost. I mean, if you're just, you know, if you're not communicating your ideas and getting feedback, then 
May as well just be in a bubble, not much of a point. It's always a collective endeavor. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you and I hope it goes brilliantly well and I'll be listening. It's a pleasure for me too. Thanks so much. Thanks, Robert.